Go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 specifically. And this passage is divided into two very distinct sections. Uh, wives submitting to their husbands and husbands honoring their wives. So uh, if, you did, if you didn't bring your popcorn with you, now would be a go, great time to go make some. And this is uh, always an interesting topic to, to talk about as the body of Christ. Um, I find it interesting that six out of these seven verses are talking about wives submitting to their husbands, and only one of them is talking about husbands honoring their wives. I'm going to be stepping on enough toes this morning, and so I'm going to allow this opportunity for you to come up with your own joke about why that might be the case. Plenty came to my head, but uh, again, I just, I'm going to be stepping in a lot this morning, so uh, just going to save that for maybe, wait five minutes or so, and then start stepping on toes here. Uh, we're going to continue our series, though, through 1 Peter, and as you know, our series title is holy living in the midst of suffering. It's an echo from the call in the Old Testament uh, from God to, for, to his people to be holy as he is holy. God's holiness speaks to his goodness, his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, his love, his faithfulness, etc. And God has called us to be holy like him, to be set apart and special to him. But as we've seen throughout 1 Peter, the path of holiness is paved with suffering and hardship. It's part of the refining fire that God uses to make us holy. I came across a story this week as I was studying, and I, I thought it was a, a great story. It was about a soldier who was in a battle. And uh, as uh, the battle waged on, he ended up getting injured and lost his eyesight. He was brought to a hospital where he was recovering from his injuries, and while he was there, he was being taken care of by a nurse who showed him extreme kindness and, and mercy and, and just loving him and taking care of him and all of his needs. And, and it was no surprise that before long, uh, he fell in love with her and asked her to marry him, and, uh, and they ended up getting married. Uh, but he stayed in that hospital recovering for uh, quite a while. And one day he overheard uh, two people as they were coming by and they were talking to each other. One of them made the comment that it was a very good thing that this man was blind because there is no way that he would have married this woman otherwise. Because her beauty in every earthly sense of the term and humanly speaking, she was lacking in the looks department. And the man the soldier who has lost his eyesight couldn't let that comment stand. And he told them, he says, it is a good thing that I have lost my eyesight or else I would have been blinded to the immense beauty, value, and worth from this woman who loves me and has taken care of me. And I thought that was a great example, a great response that he gave. And in 1 Peter, we learn that the path of holiness is paved with suffering. We understand that suffering is part of the process of losing our earthly eyesight so that we can finally see the beauty and love uh, and that joy, experience that joy that we have not, would not have experienced and seen otherwise. The gospel is receiving the good news of suffering. Receiving the good news that Jesus suffered and died on the cross for our sins. 
And that truth, that truth opens our eyes to a beauty that we would never have been able to see and witness otherwise. And when we suffer the same way that Jesus did, sacrificially, undeservedly, lovingly, patiently, it brings into focus the kind of love that God has for a sinful world. And seeing that and understanding that, it changes us and it makes us holy. And so it is here on this pathway to holiness, uh, this pathway paved with the terribly wonderful suffering, that Peter tells us that holiness, what holiness practically looks like when we live it out as Christians in not only the church community, but also in the world, in this fallen and sinful world. He says that holiness looks like submission. Holiness looks like submission. So in the last part of chapter 2, in the first part of chapter 3, Peter links holy living in the midst of suffering directly to submission. And he picks, again, what I think are three of the most difficult places for us as Christians to practice submission. And they are also three of those areas that are direct causes of a lot of the suffering and hardship that we experience in life. We've talked about two of them already. Governing authorities in chapter 2. It says, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution. It's tough to do. Um, last, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Preston talked about slaves to masters. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. And today we're talking about wives submitting to their husbands. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, all three are, of these are areas where there are plenty of seemingly good reasons, human reasons, for us not to submit. But Peter challenges us to submit. The world would look at all three of these areas and tell us why, as Alexander might say, that it is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad idea to submit. You can't. It's foolishness. It's weakness. It makes you vulnerable. Bad things could happen. There are a lot of earthly human reasons not to submit. But 1 Corinthians 1.25 says this about weakness, about being vulnerable, about looking foolish. 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And we know that that's talking about Christ and the gospel, and we are more than happy to say, yes, the gospel is foolishness to man, it's weakness, it's lowly, you know, it's just, you know, we're happy to assign and ascribe all those words to the gospel. But listen to what this, this as this passage continues, it says, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Consider this your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak into the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. As part of God's calling for us as his church, it is for us to be the low and despised that puts to shame the world that has rebelled against God. And submission 
is how we do that. It sounds to me that our calling to Christians is to a station of lowliness and of humility and of submission. And so I challenge all of us today, though this may go against every fiber of our American bones, to consider that God in his wisdom knows better than we do because he is both sovereign and he is good. And we must recognize that our human wisdom is ill-prepared to understand, much less embrace the truths of the gospel that seems like foolishness to the world. While studying 1 Peter, I've become, I think, increasingly passionate about this topic. I've come to the conclusion that it is a huge issue of primary forefront importance within the church. And that is because it is a core issue, because it is a gospel issue. The definition of the gospel itself rings of submission. If we want to look at the definition of submission, we see the gospel. I've read this to you once before, and I'm going to read it two times today because it's important that this is in the forefront of our thinking as we approach this passage on submission today. We find the definition of submission in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. And it's talking about Jesus Christ and the way he submitted himself to the point of dying on the cross for us. And we are instructed in this passage to have this mind which was in Christ Jesus. It says, have this mind among you, yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus is God. If there is someone who does not need or is not required to submit, it would be Jesus Christ. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want you to know, we all need to know and understand that submission at its heart is a gospel issue. It is the gospel itself. Submission is a gospel issue. It's how Christians live out the gospel in a fallen world. Submission is a gospel issue because it is one of the primary ways in which we demonstrate to the world in practical ways uh, the gospel so that they can get a small taste of what Christ did on the cross for them. It is our witness. This is a gospel issue. I want you to listen for the progression as, for, as Peter starts talking about these three areas of submission. I want you to connect some dots that I think are very important between these three seemingly separate issues. In chapter 2, verse 16, Peter's talking about being submitting, uh, submitting ourselves to governing authorities. He says, so that by doing good, you will put to shame, that you will silence the ignorance of foolish people. That's a direct result of, of submission being done in a right, God-honoring way to the governing authorities. Okay, that's the first one. In chapter 2, verse 19, in, in relation to slaves submitting to their masters, Peter says, For this is a gracious thing to God when one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Why is that? And he points immediately and says the reason why this is, this is a gracious thing to God is because it points to the cross. He says, When slaves submit to their masters in this way, it is a direct it is, it is better than anything else they could do in pointing to the cross and to God. And he goes on to say 
exactly what it shows. It shows that Christ committed no sin when he was reviled, when he, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting, to him, him, entrusting himself to him who judges rightly and justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live uh, to righteousness. Did you hear it? Slaves submit to their masters. They are pointing to the gospel. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, which we're going to be talking about today, it says, wives, be subject to your husbands so that they may be one, so that they may be saved, so they may come to the saving knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you hear the progression between these three? It's important. Why is submission such a huge issue? Because it silences the foolishness of the world. It proclaims the gospel and it leads people to salvation. That is why submission matters. That's why it's part of our path through suffering and, and our path to holiness, practicing submission because it is in itself a gospel issue. And when we understand submission in this way and in this manner, we're, we're no longer asking and focusing on the secondary issues We've got a lot of good questions, you know, as you know, we, we approach the Bible and we're trying to figure things out. You know, uh, the Pharisees, people came to Jesus, they're like, hey, should we pay taxes? I think that's a, it's a good question, but it's not the question. We ask important questions. You know, what does the, does the uh, Bible support encourage slavery? Great question, but it's not the question. Does God value women? Great question but not the question. Those are secondary questions. The question of primary importance for us as believers becomes this. In whatever life circumstance I find myself as a Christian, whether as a citizen of an ungodly nation, whether a slave to an ungodly master or a wife to an ungodly husband, whatever situation I find myself uh, in as a Christian, this is the question of primary importance. How do I live out the truth and the power of the gospel in a, such a way that will silence foolishness, proclaim the gospel, and lead to the salvation of the lost? In whatever circumstance I find myself in, that is the question. Everything else is secondary to that. How can I honor God? How can I proclaim the gospel? How can people be saved? Peter's answer to that question is through holy, God-honoring submission. It is with this question and answer in mind that we must approach and come to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we talk about wives submitting to their husbands. So I hope I've given you adequate time to open up your Bibles. We're going to read together. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart 
with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I'm excited to talk about this topic today. I am learning to love submission. I am struggling to practice submission, but I'm learning to love it because it is that gospel issue. But another reason that I love this topic is because, well, we have a problem within the church and that we see that within the context of our marriages, that our marriages, Christian marriages, are falling victim to the same rate of divorce that exists in our culture. And we have not, that tells me we have not been holy and set apart in this area. And I believe that is a direct result that we have not submitted our thinking to Scripture when it comes to the topic of submission. When we think like the world, we will act like the world, and we will look like the world. And guess what? We are. And so I love this topic of submission because it addresses one of these glaring issues that we have within our own marriage relationships within the church. But it's not only for that reason. It's easy, it's easy, easy for pastors to be scared to preach about this topic. Because, I mean, we all know that, uh, you, know, we're, you know, where we're at in the culture with this great movement of feminism, you know, but it's not just the feminism movement, it's also the high value that we place on, you know, in collective uh, Western society, uh, you know, that high value that we place on the right of an individual to self-determine, to be everything that you can be, to make yourself happy. You, you know, it's like you can't let anybody make you unhappy. If they do, you have to remove them out of your life because they're toxic. And the greatest good that you can possibly do, the greatest virtue that you can try to uphold is your own happiness and to, to be true to yourself. And this topic of submission flies in the face of everything that we really, the highest value that we have as individuals in Western society. But because of this unbiblical mentality that we have, many Christians will approach this passage that talks about submission, specifically wives to their husbands, and they're willing to throw it out completely. They're willing to say that it's no longer, it's no longer applicable to us. It is outdated. It's simply Christians working in the midst of a cultural context that was unique to, to them at that time. And it does not carry over and apply to, any, uh, to us in any sort of way. And I want you all to know that that is a very dangerous hermeneutic. That is a very dangerous way to interpret scriptures and saying because scripture was written in a context that looked like this back then, that it doesn't apply very similarly today to us in our context. God's word is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. It is timeless. It spans all cultures of all times and is, is applicable to us today as it was back then. I would not be so quick to dismiss God's word as being culturally irrelevant to us today. 
I think the, one of the reasons people do that, pastors are one of the worst offenders in this area, is because if we say that teaching is, if we say it's just true in that culture and context, what that allows us to do as men is now to come and say either it doesn't mean anything or even worse, we can make it mean whatever we want it to mean. Both are not God-honoring. We've got to be cautious of that. Some Christians will point to passages like Galatians 3.28. And they say where it says that there's no, no longer Jews or Greeks. There's no slave or free. There's no men and there's no women. Some people, Christians, will look at that and say, we're free. We're free. Women, we're free. We're free. Yeah, you are free. We are free to submit. A call to unity, which that passage in Galatians is a call to, is not a call away from submission. It is a call to submission. 1 Peter 2.16, just a little bit before the passage we're reading today, it says, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. This Verse is found right in the middle of this section that's talking all about submission. And so how do we use our freedom to cover up evil? What is the evil that we are trying to cover up? We're trying to cover, cover up. We're trying to give our excuse to ourselves to not submit. That is the great evil that we are trying to cover up as Christians. God has called us to submission. God has called us. The temptation for Christians is use their freedom as an excuse not to submit. You are free to submit. You are free to submit. You are free to, please say it, submit. Free to submit. The same exact way that Jesus did. Did Jesus have to die on the cross for your sins? He was free. More than anyone has ever been free, Jesus was free. And yet he submitted himself to the point of death on the cross for you and me. Jesus was free to submit, and we are too. Here are the few of the reasons that lead me to conclude that we should not attempt to retire this passage and dis dismiss it as culturally irrelevant. First one is the, the first word in this passage that it uses, likewise. It's connecting this passage of wives being, submission, uh, being submissive to their husbands to a, a much larger biblical theology of submission. This is not an isolated issue of submission that, that Peter's talking about. This is part of a huge thread of submission that's true through, from Genesis to Revelation. It's part of a, a much bigger thread. It contains, it is a continuation and it is anchored deeply within the theology of submission that spans throughout Scripture. Christian submission to government, slaves to masters, wives to husbands, young men to elders, children to parents, Jesus to the Father, Jesus to the government, Christians to each other. Do you get the idea? Submission is a much bigger idea and issue than just this. We cannot quickly just cast it out and, and say it's no longer applicable to us. We cannot say that submission of wives to husband is the lone exception that no longer is applicable to us today. 
I want wives, I want all of you wives to know that you are not alone in this call to submission. And you've got to stop acting. Sometimes when we talk about this, we act like I'm the only one that God wants to submit. And that is not the case. God has called us all to be living lives of submission to him and to each other. So wives, you are not alone. Submission is not unique to you, though there are certainly unique aspects of submission that are unique in the way that you relate to your husband, but you are, you are special, but you're not that special because God has called us to all submit as part of the refining fire of holiness in each one of our lives. You don't get to claim submission for yourselves. I claim it for me because I am free to submit. Don't you dare think this is just for you. Submission is God's plan for holiness in my life. I claim submission. I know you're going to use that against me later on. I wouldn't have said that if Eunice was here today because uh, she's home with a sixth child. I'm a little more bold than maybe I might normally be. Submission is what God uses to destroy the roots of rebellion and sin in our hearts. I need submission. It's what God uses to help us proclaim the gospel. I need submission. I want submission. Another reason. The theology of wives submitting to their husbands is rooted in God's created order. Eve was made, remember when God was creating everything, uh, he created Adam, he looked around, there was not a helper suitable for him. And so he went and he made Eve. And he said, after he created man and woman, he said, it is good. That was a good thing. Eve was made to be a helper suitable for Adam. But we have warped that idea of biblical submission, of, of being a helper. And we apply, imply that that means that someone is less important or less valuable. But we have to be reminded that Jesus himself submitted. Is Jesus less important or less valuable? No. If you said yes, you need to kick yourself out of the church. No, Jesus is not less important or less valuable. He is God. The Holy Spirit is called the helper. Is he devalued or less important part of the Trinity because of that? No. He's valued, important part. And so submission is not wrong or bad. It is our understanding of submission that is wrong and bad. Another reason why we can't relegate this passage to the you know, past history no longer applicable to us and retire this passage is because, listen to this, a wife's desire not to be submissive to her husband is part of the curse of sin. It is not a reflection of the design that God has for his creation. Genesis 3.16, part of the curse of sin. God comes and talks to Adam and Eve. He says, he says to them, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. The curse of sin is the desire not to submit, to be contrary to, to be argumentative with, and be against. No longer being a helper to the way that God has designed it. That is a sign of the curse of sin. That is not a sign of God's blessing and the freedom that comes with salvation. It's a reflection of the consequence of our sin, is that God's creation no longer functions the way that God created it to function and work. Fourth reason, 
The call for wives to submit is found in both the Old and New Testaments. We see it repeatedly throughout Scripture. In fact, the passage that we read today, it uses in the New Testament a woman, Sarah, from the Old Testament as, as the example for us to follow. And so we see that this is not a, you know, just a back then kind of thing. This is a, a universal truth that this should be a characteristic of women, of wives specifically for, for all time. And the fifth reason, I would be very cautious, extremely cautious. And I think women, you would all agree with me. Wives, you will all agree with me on this. This is why we need to be cautious not to throw this out. Because if we say that women do not, wives do not have to submit to their husbands, we must consequently argue that men must not honor their wives. Does anyone want to say that? Why is it that we, you know, we're, we're willing to throw out the submission, but we're not willing to throw out the honor? We can't have one with the other. If we take a strong view of honor, which we should, we have to, we must, and there's a punishment for men, for Christian men who do not honor their wives, if we don't take it seriously on the honoring side, am I saying this right? Can't take it seriously over here. You get in the connection? A strong, we have to have a strong view of both because both of them are gospel issues. Ten fifty three. All right. This passage cannot be dismissed as culturally irrelevant today. It demands that we listen and that we pay full attention to it. And it begs one of the great questions: What does it mean when it says wives be subject to? your own husbands. What does that mean? And I will tell you exactly what it means with all the full authority of Scripture and none of myself as a man. It means this, wives. It means that you do not insist on getting your own way with your husband. Wives, it means that you are not irritable or resentful towards your husband. Wives, it means that you do not act pridefully or, arrogant, or arrogantly towards your husband. Wives, it means that you are immensely patient with your husband. Wives, it means that you show endless kindness to your husband. Wives, it means that you put up with all the frustrating things that your husband does. Wives, it means that you do not give up on your husband. Did that rub anyone the wrong way? If it did, your problem is not with biblical submission. Your problem is with biblical love. I was glad Debbie actually had us all read that passage from 1 Corinthians 13. But all we did was use 1 Corinthians 13 to define what submission is. If you perfectly live out the love definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. You will be living in submission to your husband. You got it? God's not asking you to do a whole lot different than he's asking everybody else to be doing. So wives, if you are to live this out in fullness towards your husband, you will be living in submission because love submits. 
Love submits. I don't think there is any loving relationship that we see that submission is not part of. Jesus submitted to his father. Younger men to elders. Children to parents. Wives to husbands. And then we're called to submit to one another. It's something that characterizes all of our relationships within the body of Christ. It is part of the path of holiness. So verse 1 says, Wives, be subject to your own husband. we got to like really cruise through here, and I apologize, but I really wanted us to see why we can't quickly dismiss this passage. Wives, be subject to your own husband. I want to highlight a few things. This is not a call for women, all women, to be subject to all men. That is not what this passage is talking about, and that's not biblical. I also want to highlight these instructions are directed towards who? Wives, be subject to your husband. Who is Peter talking to? Who's God talking to? Wives. Did he anywhere in there say, men, force your wives to submit? No. Because as Christians, we are free to submit. Wives, this is the, the, the impetus is on you to do this. Men, this, the impetus is not on you to force this. This is an outworking, a sign of the Holy Spirit working in, in, within the lives of our wives to help them to do this. And we can understand how hard that can be, and not just to do that towards anyone, and we know our sin and how hard it is for them to even want to desire to do that to us. And we should not make their job any harder than it needs to be. We've got to help them in this. We've got to be understanding, as we're going to see later on, that as men's response to our wives, we've got to help them with this because this is a sign of the Holy Spirit working in them. We are free to submit. Another thing is that um, it says in verse 1, it goes on to say, so that even if some do not obey the word. So the question is, is a wife's submission to her husband contingent on him being a Christian and making good decisions and making wise decisions all the time and just all this like this perfect scenario. And we have to say no. One, because that man doesn't exist. And, and uh, two, because it says you are submitting to him so that he can be one. That implies that he is either lost or he's a Christian who's, you know, living in such a way that he's practically lost. You are living in such a way that it wins him over. Hey, this same idea is with, with government and with slaves. It's like the goodness of that entity you're submitting to is not the reason that you're submitting to, to them. It's actually almost the opposite. Because of their ungodliness, because they are ungodly, they need submission to show them the gospel. It almost makes it more important to submit when you have someone that is ungodly that you are submitting to. As hard as that is to say. Jesus did that very thing. He modeled it for us. Verse 1 continues on, so that they may be one. That's the first and primary goal of, of wives submitting to their husband is one, is obedience to God. There's no guarantee that husbands will absolutely be one. The first and foremost reason we do it is, is to obey God. The second reason is the salvation of your husband, so that he may be one. How do you win them without a word? Now, before all you wives get really excited and go home and start giving your husbands the silent treatment, when you say, when it says without a word, that doesn't mean you go home and give your husbands the silent treatment. That's not what he's talking about. 
Peter is also not saying that, wives, you cannot speak to your husbands and share the gospel with them. That is not what he's saying here. What he is saying is that your ability to persuade your husband with words is not going to be nearly as effective as your holy and righteous living through submission in front of him. Did you get that? Your words are not going to be nearly as effective as the holy and righteous living in front of him. Proverbs warns against a wife who, makes, who uh, uses her words to constantly talk to her husband, let him know how he's wrong, and, and uh, it says, and constantly argue and fight with. Proverbs 27, 15 says, a quarrelsome wife is like a continual dripping on a rainy day. That constant words are not the way to win your husband. Wives, if you're constantly arguing and fighting to get your point across and it's not working, don't be surprised because God has directed a different path for you to take. And I think this is the hardest thing is because God so many times removes us from ourselves so that he can be glorified so we can know that the work is not ours, it's his. And I don't know what all God, why all God is, has decided to do it this way in this relationship between wives and their husbands. But women, the question for you is, do you trust in God's sovereignty enough that you can rest on living out a godly wife in front of your husband and that you do not have to use words and that God can use that to save your husband? Do you trust in God's sovereignty enough that you don't have to use your words to convince him, to change him, to manipulate him? Do you trust in the sovereignty of God? That will get his attention. Verse 2 continues on. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, respectful, I think you know, you know we, I think we understand respect. You're showing that, that honor, that deference uh, to them. But when it says pure and chaste, it means immaculately clean. Um, I, I do this all the time. Like, have you, he's talking about in the context of, you know, we're using our conduct and our deeds to, you know, to uh, show the gospel. And uh, I know in my own life, it's really easy for my good deeds to be corrupted by bad attitudes and manipulative thoughts. We all do this, men and women alike. This isn't unique to any of us. But when it's talking about pure and respectful conduct, uh, it's not talking about what sometimes I do. Like my wife wanted a garden, and I, when, you know, she wanted me to help her with this garden. When I went out and worked on the garden, I did not have a pure respectful kind of interaction with my wife in this. I did it. Was that enough that should have made her happy? No, because she knew my heart. And it, that, that seed of the heart made a good deed bitter. What should have been a blessing for me to my wife, I have now transformed into a cursing to her. That garden now is symbolic in some ways of of evil and sin in my life. Do you see how, why it's important that when he's talking about conduct, he says that it needs to be respectful and pure, clean conduct? Because we can, we can do it, but be rebellious and dishonoring in how we do it. And that's not the kind of conduct that God uses to change uh, husbands and win them over. Verse 3 continues on. It says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. 
Um, it says, don't, don't let, you know, don't be focused so much on the outside that you neglect the inside. This is not saying that you, can, you can't go and, you know, uh, take care of yourself. You can't, it's not saying that you can't, you know, wear nice clothes or braid your hair. But the problem is, is when we, uh, when we care more about those things than the inter- internal work that God wants to do on our hearts, we've lost our ways. Like Proverbs 31, 30 says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is worthy to be praised. A humble and contrite heart the Lord will not despise. And so don't let your adorning be merely external. Make sure you're allowing God to do the work on the inside of your hearts, addressing those heart issues. Verse 4 continues on, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty. Again, women, this is not unique just to you. You're being, you know, you're being pointed out in this passage specifically, but this is something that God expects of all of his people. That, that adorning is not external. It's something that's going on on the internal. 1 Samuel uh, 16.7 says this, but the Lord said to Samuel, this is when God is selecting King David and uh, using Samuel, his prophet, to anoint David as the next prophet. He says, but do not look on his appearance or the height or his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, God looks at the heart. So don't spend your time on the external. Spend it on what God is doing in the internal. And what does that look like? A gentle and quiet spirit. Some women think this is demeaning. Some women think, you know, gentle and quiet. I'm not gentle and quiet. You know, and they start using all their words, kind of like the way we just talked about there, Peter did. It's like gentle and quiet is not demeaning. Who else was gentle and quiet? Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is not an insult to women asking you to be gentle and lowly. This is a call for all believers to do, to live like Jesus lived, to take this mind which is in Christ Jesus, to have that same mind in ourselves. Jesus was gentle and lowly. I'm reminded of when Jesus was in the, in the storm with his disciples crossing the lake in the boat, and everybody else was rattled. You know, they were afraid. They were freaking out. And I think that gentle, quiet spirit in Jesus, what was he doing in that boat? He was sleeping. He was resting. I think that gentle, quiet spirit reflected a trust and a confidence in a sovereign God more than anything else. And gentle and lowliness in us reflects the same exact thing. That though my husband might not be saved, though he might not be responding the way that I want him to. That gentle and lowly spirit allows us to say that I know my God is sovereign and this is part of his plan. And when I'm obedient to it, that's what God uses to change people. Gentle and lowly is not a demeaning thing. It is a powerful testimony of who Jesus is. It also says that, ladies, when you are like this, you are precious to God. Again, the fear is that submission devalues women and wives and is a reflection of not being precious. But get this, 
The same exact term for precious that is used of women when women are behaving in this way, when, when the beauty is in the heart and they are submitting to their husbands in this way, that same word that says you are precious to God, do you know what else that same exact word was used for just a chapter, uh, a couple of chapters before? It's talking about the gospel and about you were redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. God's blood precious that purchased us. It's of immeasurable value and importance. Yes, that same word is used for you as you submit and live out the gospel in the context of your home and in your marriage. That's powerful. That is precious to God. It is also used in 1 Peter 2, 4. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You keep hearing this idea over and over again. These things are precious to God. Is it devalued in any sort of way, demeaned in any sort of way? Absolutely not. This is precious to God. To be precious to God is to be holy. Isn't that what holy is? holiness is? To be set apart, to be special to God. Lady submission does not reflect a devalued position before God or his kingdom, but one of immense importance. Isn't it liberating to know that you are not valued because of your looks and your outward adornment? You are valued because you have been ransomed by the precious blood of the Lamb. You are valued because you are a living stone rejected by men, but precious to God. You are valued and precious because you can reflect the gospel so clearly in your actions that you do not have to use words, and the Spirit of God will use that to convict your husbands of his sins. That is precious and valuable. Wives, submission does not demean or devalue. It makes you precious and beautiful with an imperishable beauty that is unfading. Verse 5 and 6 goes on to say, For this is how holy women of old, they hoped in God and they adorned themselves. This is a timeless truth throughout Scripture, throughout all times, that this, this is how the women of old adorned themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And it highlights Sarah. And I think this is really interesting because it says, first off, it says, Sarah called Abraham Lord. Uh, I woke up, or we were going to bed the other day, Eunice and I, and, and um, you know, Eunice is getting in bed, and she had a long day, and she's like, Lord, I'm tired. So I turned to her, and I said, uh, Eunice, please, in the bedroom, please just call me John. <laughs> I'm lying. That totally didn't happen. <laughs> that is not saying that wives need to call their husbands Lord. Not saying that. This is not a salvific kind of Lord. But it is recognizing the headship of the man in the, in the marriage relationship to lead the home. This is, echoes that, the idea in Ephesians 5. It says, as Christ is the head of the church, the man is the head of the wife. And so, again, it's an, that idea, what does it practically look like? This idea of gentle and quiet spirit, this respectful and pure attitude and heart that a woman has as she approaches her husband in this submissive and loving way. This is, this is what it looks like, is 
allowing the husband to lead the way that God has called him to lead and not trying to subvert that, manipulate it, not doubting God's sovereign will and how what your part is to play within that, but being faithful to that calling. It's interesting, though, that Sarah is chosen as a model of submission. Because I look at her, and I see all these reasons that Sarah would not have been a great model. You know, Sarah, she laughed when she heard that she was going to have a son in her old age. Can't really blame her, really. But she also, Sarah, she went along with Abraham with his horrible plan uh, when he lied and said that he, uh, she was his sister. She went along with that. Uh, it was also Sarah's idea that uh, she would give her maid... Uh, Hagar to Abraham to have a son with, uh, with Abraham instead of trusting God that God would provide for him. There's just a lot of things about Sarah you're just like, man, that's kind of messed up. Sarah's not a great example. And I think it's interesting that, again, Sarah is used as one of these great examples in this way. What did she do well? She did well in that she submitted to Abraham. I wonder what it was like for Sarah when Abraham came to her and he said, hey, God spoke to me. Remember, this is an Old Testament. She didn't have a Bible. She didn't have any. There's a lot of gods. There's a lot of other things going on. Abraham, Abram at that time came to her. He was like, God spoke to me, and we got to leave this place. we got to go to this new home. we got to travel far, far away. Can you imagine all the questions that Sarah has in her mind? You mean I've got to leave my family? Hey, where is this new home that you're talking about, Abram? I don't know. How long is it going to take to get there, Abram? I don't know. You know, all these, she had a lot of good reasons in today's mindset not to follow his lead. Really, I can't believe she did it. But she submitted to him. And because of that, I think it's credited to her as righteousness. You know, I mean, take, just imagine this for a second. Like, again, Abraham, he at least had God speaking to him directly. So it seems. We don't know all the picture, but Sarah, imagine how hard it was for Abram to follow God. Imagine how much harder it was for Sarah to follow Abram. That is an act of faith. That is an act of trust, an act of submission. And God honored that and says, that is precious. That is precious. And because of that, it says, you are her children. We sing songs about Abraham, Father Abraham. But this is, because of that, you're not just Abraham's children. You are her children because she acted in faith. And that's credited as righteousness. So, in closing, our application is to men. And wives, I'm sorry because I I focus a lot on those six verses, and I don't have as much time. I would love to, like, hammer the guys really hard on this. And I pray that God's convicting spirit will continue to work after we close up this morning. And, and whatever, you have, whatever Jews you had to pay this morning, they will pay tenfold in conviction from the Holy Spirit on them as we leave this place today. But I want you to know that just because six verses were spent on wives and one verse was spent on men, if you will, that this topic is no less important Guys And guys aren't getting off the hook. Guys just maybe need it a little bit more simply put, straight and easy. Um, and, but I think it's also interesting, and I don't kid about this, guys are threatened at the end of their response here. 
They're, they're threatened with, I think, something next to the loss of salvation is the most severe punishment that you could threaten someone in if they are not walking in obedience. I didn't see that, that level of admonition towards, towards women, and I see that to men. In this one verse, it says, men, if you do not honor your wives the way that God has called you to, I will not listen to you. Wives, you're not called to give your husbands silent treatment, but God is threatening silent treatment for us men when we do not honor our wives the way that God has called us to. Is God trying to get our attention as men? Yes, he is. He, God says, or Peter's saying in this, and thusly God is saying, he's like, women, or I'm sorry, men, husbands, honor your wives in an understanding way. What does that mean in an understanding way? Well, it means simply this. You look at Scripture and everything that it says about women and everything about it says about wives, and you see that they are precious to God. You see that they are image bearers of God himself. You see that they are co-heirs with you in Christ. They are part of the church. They have gifts and abilities to be used in the context of, church, of, of the church life. You look at everything Scripture says about them, and then you honor them the way that God just did by saying they are precious to me. And if you want to make God angry, devalue something that is precious to him. That makes God angry. The worst thing that can happen to us is that God will not listen to our prayers. Guys, God is getting our attention. We cannot expect our wives to submit when we are not honoring in full light of everything that God has said that women and our wives are meant to be. We cannot expect it. We, we cannot force submission. Real quick, um, men are told to honor their wives in, a, be a, in an understanding way as a weaker vessel. This is another one of those hard things, you know, to, what does it mean by weaker vessel? Uh, some, you know, commentators will say that women are physically weaker. Some commentators will say that they're spiritually weaker. Some commentators will say that they're emotionally weaker. Some will say that they're all weaker in all these different ways. I pull back from that because God has just went out of his way, I think, to really, to say, honor this. And I don't think when he's telling us to honor something that at the same time of doing that, he gives a backhanded compliment to women and being honored them because they are lesser in all these ways. I've seen women who are way more spiritual than men, way more spiritual than me. I've seen women who are way better in physical shape than men, definitely better physical shape than me. I've seen women who are emotionally stronger, like my wife Eunice is way emotionally stronger than me. I'm like the one on this kind of pattern in life, not her. So I don't think it's talking about all those things. When it's talking about a weaker vessel, I think we all have to recognize that we are all jars of clay. We are all weaker vessels in a sense. But what I think it's talking about, what vessel, what weaker vessel uh, do we have in our homes that we also give honor to? And, uh, and I think you've probably heard pastors talk about this before too, but we, we point to fine china. 
You know, it's a vessel that many times is, is used and has a special function and purpose and role to play. And it's decorative and it's beautiful, but in a different way than all the stuff that's, you know, the regular dishes that we're using anywhere, everywhere else. But I think it's unique in that the beauty that that fine china has reflects the beauty of its creator. And I think that's one of the reasons that we as men need to honor our wives is because they are that fine china that reflect the beauty of the gospel. And we need to honor that. We need to respect that. We need to love that. And like scripture tells us, to love our wives, men, is to love ourselves. This is in our best good. And so I'm not letting the guys off in any sort of way this morning um, by not talking to you quite as long. In closing, uh, we talked about wives and husbands specifically today, but my hope is that we can zoom out and see the big picture. That submission is not a dirty or demeaning topic for Christians. That submission is a gospel issue. Submission is not unique of just women. It's something that all Christians are called to practice, and submission is part of God's plan for us to demonstrate and live out the gospel. Submission is precious to God. And so to close, I'd like to read one more time the definition of submission so that it can characterize all of our lives. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You are free to submit, just as Christ did. May that characterize our lives and our community of believers here at Calvary.